0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I am a uh, sucker for lists. Um, You know, top 50 this, best 5 of all time. I, I realize they usually are meaningless. They take us nowhere. They lack nuance. When you like nuance, you open yourself up to uh, criticism and attack. I get that, but still, I Google lists. So I was thinking this week uh, with the reading, I was thinking about my top five all-time uh, children's Bible stories. OK? Now, I'm sure we have, there's going to be debate around this. You probably won't hear the rest of the sermon. You're going to be thinking about the top five, what your top five will be. But I'll give you my top five, starting with number five, okay? Here we go. Top five children's Bible stories. First one, Zacchaeus and Jesus. It's a good one, right? No. Probably because of the song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, which is redundant, by the way, wee and little. Um, what was the lesson that I was talking, taught in that story? By the way, the thing about Zacchaeus, um, the Greek is ambiguous. We don't know if Zacchaeus was the short one or if Jesus was the short one. Okay, that's legit. All right, mind blown right there. Again, you're not going to hear anything else I say. That's what you'll walk away with. Who's the short one? That's what I learned in church today. All right, what's the lesson in Zacchaeus and Jesus? I mean, work really hard to get to Jesus. Climb trees if you have to. You know, that's what we teach our kids. That's number five. Number four, Noah's Ark. Not really sure why. Probably because of the rainbow. After the rain comes the rainbow. Isn't that nice? Do you realize how violent and tragic that story is? My goodness. And in spite of that, there's an entire line of decorations for babies' nurseries around Noah's Ark themes. Imagine explaining to a child that their room is decorated with a story about how a flood came and killed everyone. <laughs> Good night. Rest well. <laughs> Goodness me. Uh, number three, feeding of the 5,000. What's the lesson there? What do we tell our kids? Share Share your lunch. (laughs) Share your lunch. Oh, that's what we got out of that. The miracle of all miracles, practically. And we tell kids, share your lunch. Uh, Number two, I would rank this one, and we'll get to this one. Samuel's calling from God. Number one, what's the only one left? David and Goliath. Again, extreme violence. What's the lesson? Well, when you encounter a giant that's threatening to you, you know, kill him, cut off, you know, no. These kids' stories. Isn't it interesting how we teach the Bible to our children? Did you notice anything missing in those lessons? Uh, God, maybe? Those of us who teach children and young people How do we know that we're actually teaching something that's Christian? Uniquely Christian. So many of the lessons we give our children could just pass for moral lessons in absolutely any possible context. Share your lunch is a good idea for anyone, not just Christians. So surely the Bible has much more for us than this. Surely God's call to Samuel in the middle of the night isn't merely an episode in getting our little children to sit up and pay attention and listen to the big voices in their lives. It's got to be more. Life's bigger than that. It's deeper than that. It's much more complicated. And when life hits us squarely between the eyes, what we want and what we need is a depth of experience with the living God. To know that our lives rest in the one who stands in for us. Who has made us. Who has redeemed us. And in doing that, it's not that we get all our questions answered. But rather, the one who created us also brings us into participation with the life of God himself. Our life. Connected to the life of Of the living, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God. This is the meaning of our existence. That's what our children need to hear and know. And somehow, in spite of this profound, miraculous mystery, we still manage to sanitize God to the point that Jesus, Jesus is nothing more than an ancient therapist who doles out advice when we're in a quandary. People often talk about how to get young people back into the church or how to keep them in the church. And what a lot of us are tempted to do in that situation is to think less about God and more about ourselves is the recipe for success. But 20-somethings I found to be highly educated and very bright, and they are not duped by the lowest common denominator, or an effort toward being shallow. If the church can't offer this generation, or the world, our ultimate need, that deep relationship with the powerful, dangerous, loving God, then why would we bother at all? Now, I don't mean that church should be a bully. And should beat people over the head with strong leadership like some people have. But rather, I mean, we must really be honest about who God is. Be ready to hear the tough word that he speaks to us and believe that Jesus is worth going all in for. Now that takes some time and some effort and some complex thinking and some patience and some commitment it is after all his life that saves us he is God, we are not he has all knowledge, we know nothing it's his work, his life that makes our life make sense and when he speaks when he approaches us when he confronts us we must listen, even if it is a tough word Only that will get us to the place of our deepest need. And his word can be tough at times. It was for Samuel. It was for Eli. But where else will we go? Only he has the words of eternal life, as Peter said. So Samuel's story has depth. It's not a fluffy story about a sweet wee boy. And when I heard the story growing up and this lesson was usually, when God speaks to you, you'd better be sure and listen. Okay, fair enough. It's there. There are lots of other great things in this text too. Like, for example, the correct usage of lie and lay, which is a challenge for our society. If you want to know the past tense of lie... Read the story of Samuel. It's of great benefit. But the problem with looking at the story in just that simple way is that it doesn't seem to be the point that the author is making. Rather, the message that Samuel received was terrible news for the old established priest who's in power in Israel and is Samuel's boss. It seems to me that's what the author wants us to hear, among other things. And really, all through chapters 1 through 4 in 1 Samuel, there is a power shift going on amongst God's people. And it begins in the church, with the clergy. Have you ever noticed how easy it is for people, not us, we don't do this, How easy it is for people to spend most of the time taking the splinters out of the eyes of those outside the church and ignoring the logs that are in our own eyes. Have you noticed that? I know we don't do that, but some of these Christian people do. God doesn't overlook those logs in his church, in his pastors, in his clergy. In fact... He tends to be much tougher on us, the church, his people, than he is on those who haven't yet found their way into the church. And we do just the opposite. It would be very easy to cast verbal stones at all the people around us out there, given the events of the past few days in our city and country. But God seems much more intently focused on his church than he does on all of that. He seems to be fully committed to beautifying us and sanctifying his church. Much more so than we seem to be. God is much more interested in our sanctification than we are. That's always how it was with Israel. And it's how it is for us today okay so what do we need to hear in this story a quick summary the chapter begins by telling us that the word of the Lord was rare in those days God was quiet routine the established order of things that's all people could see when it comes to God the Word of God wasn't very vivid or noticeable It was a day when people went to Tabernacle, and there was lots of worship, lots of preaching, lots of religion. But it seemed that all of that, with the intended central focus, conspicuously absent, God himself. And people, especially the clergy of the day, if you read chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, describing Eli's sons, they were not captivated by God. Eli was the priest. He was old. He was established. He had the pedigree. He was a descendant of Aaron, the first high priest. And as an old, established, credible priest, he stands between the people and God. That is a position of power and authority. He is quite a fellow in quite a position. Remember, there was no king at this time, so it didn't get more prominent. But in spite of this older, established generation that's in power, the Word of God is still very rare, very quiet. By the way, we'd be wise not to equate the silence of God with the absence of God. It may seem that in the middle of pandemics and cultural wars and pastoral resignations and rapid church decline and climate change, and poverty and homelessness, those who experience homelessness, and on and on and on, it may seem that God is absent. And we'd be mistaken to think that. He may be silent, or better, he may be whispering, but absent he is not. In the middle of the night, the word of the Lord arrives. But to everyone's surprise, it doesn't come to the man in charge. I wonder if Eli was insulted by that. And I also wonder why he didn't get up and say, Samuel, I'll come with you and listen, and I'll respond for you. He just stepped back. The priest, the high priest of the day, stepped back and just said, okay, you listen. Interesting. I don't know what to make of all of that. But it doesn't come to Eli. It comes to a boy who is responsible to be merely a doorkeeper in the house of God. The author tells us in verse 7 that Samuel wasn't sure what was going on because he had never received a message from the Lord before. Eli had, his sons had, but not Samuel. Eli and his sons had ignored the message they received, but Samuel did not. And the message that God gave the doorkeeper wasn't an easy one to hear. Eli was his mentor, his priest, a father of sorts for all practical purposes. And God said, tell him I'm going to carry out judgment on him, and even his sacrifices will do nothing to change my mind. Wow. The word of the Lord was rare in those days, but when it arrived, it was a word of judgment. A word of judgment for the credible Mm religious, established generation. We might say the church. Ouch. Have you ever heard someone say, yes, Jesus, especially those who are not familiar with the Christian faith, yes, Jesus taught so many good things and loved people and lived real kindness. We should be more like him. And I always want to say to those folks, have you ever read anything he said? Have you ever read the Bible? He was disruptive. And God tends to do that, especially when it comes to his own people. On nearly every page of the Bible, it seems that God is always doing something new. He's creating, transforming, tearing down, surprising, recreating. Apparently, there's something about us and our world that requires that sort of divine imposition. It's almost like we're having a relaxing float on the river of life, confident that we understand the issues and that our way is the high road and God's word breaks into us, into our established and hyper-religiosity. And it turns our world upside down. We sang earlier, I love the song, All Things New. Be careful what you pray for. God can be disruptive. Jesus tells a scholar and leader of the clergy, Nicodemus, that he's going to have to be born all over again if he's going to get into the kingdom of God. Back through the birth canal you go. There's nowhere else to turn. That's your only hope. Start all over, Nicodemus. That's how bad off you are. Jesus rebuked his disciples so often that it gets comical. And he even called one of them Satan. Lest we think this is a generational problem for older people, it was the rich young ruler who was saddened by Jesus' teaching because it just seemed utterly unreasonable and outside the realm of, pers- of, of, uh, of possibility to give up everything that we have and that we deserve and give it away to those who don't deserve it. And he went away sad. Maybe we're beginning to get more to the heart of the matter. And you've been waiting a while for that. I know it's it's not so much Jesus or the idea of God that bothers us or anybody else. It's what he has to say that's tough to take. And he says some strange things in this text. There's some bizarre things, particularly in chapter 2 leading up to chapter 3. If you've ever read the Old Testament civil and cultic laws, cultic just meaning worship laws, they don't exactly land with modern readers. Um, Some of them are alluded to in chapter 2, where the author describes the sin of Eli's sons. One of their sins was stealing from those who were bringing sacrifices to God. Now part of those sacrifices were due the priests but Eli's sons were helping themselves to much more than they were due so they robbed the people the people they were meant to serve And then verse 16 strange causes us to raise an eyebrow when when God gets very angry with the sons because they would take the meat before the fat had been burned off which was a requirement A sacrificial requirement for worship to God. God says, before you eat anything, you have to burn the fat off the meat. That's mine. Okay. (laughs) And we look sideways at that one. I don't know why. I don't know all the reasons. There are conflicting views on this in the commentators. Some say it's because the fat was the best part. And, you know, I don't know. That's not my point this morning. But Eli stole, or Eli's son stole from the people. Eli's son stole from God. They robbed what was due him in worship. And then God says that he considered that a very great sin. Hmm. And it doesn't sound like a very great sin to us, right? It sounds like a sin. Okay. It doesn't sound like a very great sin. Not so much that he would send a special and direct audible word when the word of God was rare in those days from heaven to a young inexperienced altar boy doesn't seem to be that big of a deal where he would have to do that. I think that's part of our problem. God has a strange way of looking at the world. And that tends to move upstream on our comfortable cultural river. And when his tough, disruptive word comes to us and it doesn't fit our mode of being, we have this amazing ability to ignore it. Somewhere along the line, we sanitized Jesus and decided he was worth following as long As he expected of us, all he expected of us was a sweet, happily ever after children's Bible story. But is that really who our God is? And is that really what we need to hear? And more than that, would he be worth following if he didn't ask anything difficult of us? My son recently completed, not this one, another one, um, recently completed a three week course to become a water instructor for the Marine Corps. He described to us what they had to go through in order to pass that course, and I'll assure you, I'd rather have my face sewn to the carpet than go through anything he endured at Camp Lejeune. But he attacked it with almost Giddy enthusiasm. It was a job worth having because the road to get there was a calling that was difficult and he knew when he arrived he would be at a great place. If you are looking for a comfortable life, don't come to church. We should stop inviting people to come in and Get things sorted out. Your life's going to be great. Come to Jesus. He'll take it. No. If you want quietness and affirmation from the world and prosperity, and you'd like to coast into retirement on a peaceful Deschutes River float in Sun River, Oregon, don't come into Jesus' family. Jesus said stuff like, Love me more than your kids, your job, your country. Or else you can't follow me. He said stuff like, you can't have any other gods except for me. Which means you can't worship a flag. Or your child's athletic ability. Or church buildings. Or bulletins. Or orders of worship. Or the pastor. Or the way we've always done things. In town, we would do well to remember that this is God's church, not ours. And when things go wonky in his church, he takes it personally. And he is determined to set it right, even if it requires a tough word. Ultimately, a loving word, but a tough one. The day of the tragedy of 9-11, a reporter encountered this couple who were standing near ground zero. They were weeping. They were grieving the loss of their daughter. The reporter stumbled through the interview and said, Well, I'm sure you'll go to your place of worship this weekend and receive some comfort. And the woman responded, No, we will not be going to our place of worship this weekend. See, we're Christians. And we know that Jesus requires us to forgive our enemies. And we're not quite ready to do that yet. Now, there's someone who understands the God they're worshiping. But lest we all walk away discouraged. The tough word is only tough insofar as we fail to see the end, the telos, the joy that awaits us. Jesus, because of the joy that was before him, endured the cross. God is setting and will set this world right And he's called us, you, into that mission as his priests and kingdom laborers. And as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ and what he's doing in this world, then the tough word is simply a cross that leads toward joy. The way of the cross is the way of life and peace. And the word of God for his church may be a tough word, but it's a word that brings life and joy and hope for us and for the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thanks be to God. Amen.